It's Monday morning. You've had a relaxing July 4th weekend. But as you get ready for the day, you flip on the news and you hear a stunning report. Foreign troops have invaded Washington, D.C. You have no idea how they got past our military. But the capital is overrun. As you're trying to process the news, you begin to hear a roaring from the sky overhead. And so you run out into your yard, you look up into the sky, and you see these waves of planes flying overhead. And then the parachutes start to fall. At that moment, your phone rings, and you answer. It's your sister. And she's so hysterical, you can hardly understand what she's saying, but she says that. Some soldiers just burst into her house a few minutes before and grabbed her two teenage sons, your nephews, and dragged them away. She has no idea where they are. As you hang up in shock, your phone buzzes. And this time it's a friend from your shepherding group who asks if you heard about the church building. It's been torched. And as you're reading her text, it's burning to the ground. In the hours that follow, you try to process what's happening. Stories are flooding in of families that have been separated, children that have been abducted, people who have been killed. And you see units of foreign soldiers marching through the street outside your window. Everything is in chaos and your world is turned upside down. That may give us a little sense of what's happening in Daniel chapter one, which is where we come this morning as we begin our series through Daniel. So you can turn with me there in your Bible or listen along as we read it together. Daniel chapter one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. 
But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said, to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So, He listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is God's word for us. Well, the book of Daniel is a fairly unique book in the Bible because it combines several different types of literature, several different types of genre. You've got narrative or storytelling, kind of like what we just read here in chapter one. You have prophecy, which is speaking truth from God and even foretelling the future. And then a third type of of literature is apocalypse, which is the unveiling or the revealing of things that are unseen, unveiling them through really vivid pictures and images. And because of these things, especially the the prophecy of the future and the apocalypse, the unveiling of supernatural things, this book can be terrifying. It can feel mysterious. And so sometimes people neglect Daniel altogether or they neglect parts of Daniel, which seem very foreign and hard to understand. But we do that to our harm. But due to our limited time, since I'm with you in this way for four weeks, we're just going to visit the first four chapters of this book, one chapter each week. These chapters each tell a separate story, and yet together they form a unit that 
tells us about the interaction between two key characters of the book, Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Chapter one, which we're in today, is an introduction to the book. It introduces us to some of the key characters, as we saw here, especially Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, but it also introduces us to some of the key themes of the book. Themes like God's sovereignty over nations and over individuals. The danger which God's people face from earthly empires and earthly rulers. The faithfulness of God's people through danger. God's care for his people and his preserving them through danger. And then even the fleeting nature of human kingdoms and the eternal nature of God's kingdom. Possibly more than any other book in our Bible, the book of Daniel emphasizes this theme of king or kingdom. If you were to read through the whole book, and I've done this with one copy of my scripture, if you were to read through the whole book and circle king or kingdom every time and draw a line between them, you essentially have a roadmap down every page of Daniel. And I haven't actually counted up how many times it appears, but it is probably dozens and dozens of times that, that those words king or kingdom appear in this book. It emphasizes the stark and surprising differences between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our Lord. As you noticed, the book begins pretty abruptly. Boom, there's an invasion and people are deported. So let's get a little bit of background here first with this unexpected conquest. You might uh, categorize this first section, verses one through seven, as cultural upheaval, cultural upheaval. And we have two more sections to follow this one. This first one is definitely upheaval. Daniel and his friends would have experienced most of their childhood during the reign of King Josiah. He was the last good king of Judah, the southern kingdom of, of the nation of Israel when it's split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Josiah is the king here in the southern kingdom. He's the last godly king. He brought great spiritual reform to Judah, drawing the people back to the God of heaven. Daniel and his three friends were probably teenagers, 15, 16, when Nebuchadnezzar invades. That means they were probably born about the time when King Josiah reinstituted the great Jewish feast of Passover, which had been dormant for years and years because of ungodly kings. Josiah resurrects this great feast and the scriptures tell us in 2 Chronicles 35 that it was a Passover unlike any other since the time of Samuel, which was before any of the kings. So Josiah has brought great spiritual revival to the kingdom of Judah, turning people's gaze back to the God of heaven. But as Daniel and his three friends are growing up in their boyhood years, there's a shadow over the kingdom because there are prophets like Zephaniah and Habakkuk and Jeremiah who come through the city 
And they're proclaiming judgment is coming on Judah and Jerusalem because of the people's disobedience to God in the past. So as these boys get older, perhaps they wonder if the judgment is coming in their day. They see their king, Josiah, go out to battle against Pharaoh of Egypt. At this point, Egypt is a superpower and they're going up to fight a battle with another superpower. And Josiah comes out to intercept them. And Pharaoh says, I don't have anything to do with you. I've got no bone to pick with you. Stay out of my way. And Josiah doesn't pay any attention. He intercepts Pharaoh and Pharaoh kills him. And these boys hear the tragic news of the death of their king. Immediately, of course, there's turmoil in the kingdom. Who's going to be king next? The people of Judah put Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, on the throne, but he's only there for three months before Pharaoh comes back through the country, takes Jehoahaz off the throne, and puts his brother Jehoiakim on the throne. And there's the evil king who rules for three years before Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon shows up. Let's look at this conqueror, Nebuchadnezzar, from the passage. In 605 BC, that's when Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem. And this young charismatic king has just defeated the superpower Egypt and the superpower Assyria. So Babylon is on the rise. And Nebuchadnezzar and his fame are growing He comes to Judah, he besieges the capital city of Jerusalem, and this was his first wave of conquest over the city. So he he doesn't destroy the temple at this point. As we read, he takes vessels out of God's temple. He takes captives and he drags them back to his nation of Babylon. He puts a puppet king on the throne. They end up rebelling again. Eight years later, his troops come back. They take more captives away from Judah into Babylon. Judah rebels again. 11 years later, Nebuchadnezzar's troops come back. The temple is is razed to the ground and Jerusalem, the capital city, is destroyed. But here in this first wave, what do we see about Nebuchadnezzar? Well, did you notice all the verbs, all the things that he's doing? Look down at the first few verses here. Verse 2. He brought the vessels out of the temple. Verse three, he commanded, commanded what? To bring youths, to bring people out of their country and into his. Why? Verse four, because they were going to teach the youths. Verse five, he's also going to assign them their food. Verse five, they're gonna be educated. Verse five again, they're gonna stand in his court And verse seven, his overseers gave new names to these captives. Nebuchadnezzar seems to be in control. He's the one who's doing everything. He's commanding and it's happening. And how is he transforming or trying to change these captives that he's taking into his country? Well, he's bringing people out of Israel, out of Judah, into his land. So he's taking them out of their familiar place and into his place. 
And what kinds of people is he taking? Did you notice that? Verse three, the people who are without blemish, they're beautiful. The people who are of the royal family and the nobility, they're powerful. The people who are skillful in all wisdom, they're smart. The people who are capable to stand in the king's palace, they're capable and competent. So he's taking the best and the brightest and he's pulling them out of their culture and he's taking them to his. And what is he gonna do there? He's going to brainwash them. He's gonna teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. He's gonna educate them for three years. What else is he gonna do? He's gonna assign them the daily portion of their food. In one sense, that could be a benevolent thing from Nebuchadnezzar. I'm gonna be a great king. I'm gonna give him some of my feast. But in another sense, food is always a part of a culture. So here's another way where he's absorbing these people into his pagan culture. And what's the last thing that they do? His overseer gives these guys new names. When you name somebody, what does that show? It shows that you have authority over them. It shows that you are identifying them. And if you look at these names, there's a huge difference between their Jewish names and their Babylonian names. Daniel means God is my judge. His Babylonian name, Bel, protect his life. Bel's a pagan God. Hananiah, Yahweh, the name of Israel's God. Yahweh has been gracious. Shadrach, the command of Aku, another pagan God. Mishael, who is like God. His name, Meshach, who is what Aku is. Azariah, Yahweh has helped. Abednego, servant of Nebo. So in every case, the name of the one true God is eviscerated from their identity and they're given a new identity that's connected to paganism. So summary of this conqueror, He conquers Daniel's nation and his king. He dishonors Daniel's God by taking the vessels out of the temple. He divides Daniel's family. He tries to brainwash Daniel's mind and he tries to change Daniel's identity. Does any of that sound familiar? Modern culture, dividing families, brainwashing and changing identity. We're going to take your best and brightest and going to make them Ours. That's the conqueror. What about the captives? What must the people of God and even Daniel and his friends, what must they have been thinking during this time? What are they experiencing at this point? What thoughts and fears are racing through their mind? Well, the scriptures don't tell us, but as humans, as fellow humans, putting ourselves in their shoes, we can imagine a little bit So here are some questions, questions that Daniel and his friends might've been asking, questions that any human in cultural upheaval may think. First, where is God? Where is God and why isn't he doing something? It's essentially a question about God's ability. Is God real? Is he powerful enough to stop evil and oppression and injustice in our world? 
Where is God? It's a question that you might ask, a question that many people in our world ask. In the face of injustice and oppression, where is God? Second, if there is a God and if he is in charge, why is he working in this way? Why is he doing this? This is a question about God's method. Why does God act like this? I don't understand God. I wouldn't do it this way. Why is God using these people, the Babylonians, to conquer my people? Why couldn't God bring about justice and righteousness in a different way? And if you were to read the prophet Habakkuk, who prophesied during this time, Habakkuk asks this very question. At the very beginning of the book, Habakkuk calls out to God and he says, there is so much oppression and injustice in my country. God, why aren't you doing something? And when God answers, it's a completely different solution than Habakkuk was looking for. God says, yes, there is injustice. There is oppression. There is idolatry in your nation of Judah. So here's my solution. I'm going to send in the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and they're going to ransack your country. And if I'm Habakkuk, I say, okay, time out. Hold on. I didn't want that solution. And Habakkuk says this after God gives his answer. Habakkuk says in Habakkuk chapter one, oh Lord, you have ordained them the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, as a judgment. And you, O Lord, have established them for reproof. And then here's his question. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors, meaning the Babylonians? Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? The solution, God, is worse than the original problem. So if God is in charge, why is he working this way? Third, in the midst of upheaval, what will happen to our nation? I mean, can you imagine being Daniel's family or his friends or his community as they watch Daniel, his friends, and however many others get dragged away, never to be seen again. The youngest, the brightest, the best have been taken. What's gonna happen to our nation? God's vessels from his temple have been pulled out. What's gonna happen to our form of worship? When everything we've known and loved has been destroyed or desecrated or dragged away, then where do we turn? Who are we without all of the trappings that we had in the past? And how can we live without the security and the good feelings of those practices and traditions that we were used to? What's going to happen to our nation? And fourth, along with that, what's going to happen to the next generation? What's going to happen to our children? This has to do with our future. Can the next generation survive the onslaught of evil? Are they ready to withstand the conforming powers of the culture and the age that's around them? We love these children 
And we see them disappearing into the distance. Now they're being taken from us and conformed to a pagan world. What's going to happen to them? In the face of this strong conqueror and in the face of these questions, this doubt, this fear, we see the Lord. The Lord in the midst of cultural upheaval. Verse 2. And the Lord gave. The Lord. What's that title mean? The master and ruler of the universe. The one who owns everything and who governs everything. He gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the city of Jerusalem into the hand of this pagan king. God is real, and he is here, and he is active. He is the owner and the possessor. Judah is his, and he has the authority to surrender her to whomever he wills. But wow, he is working in really unexpected ways. God is giving his people to a pagan king. And that seems really unexpected if you know your Old Testament, if you know the Bible. Because all through the Bible, how is the God of heaven described in relationship to his people? He's described as a God who protects his people, who shows them kindness, who cares for them as a shepherd, who is faithful to keep his promises to them. But that's just the point. He keeps his promises. Promises not only for good and for blessing, but promises for judgment and punishment. So in one sense, this really shouldn't be unexpected because we have seen prophets coming to the people of God generation after generation after generation, warning them and calling them to turn from their sin to the one true God. And God's people continue to turn away from him and to engage in their immorality, their idolatry, and their rebellion. And so finally, what does God do? What has he said And what will he do? Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 21. So back toward the beginning of your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 21. I want to read you a few verses here of an example of what God had said to his people. 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 10. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets. So it's not just one. There's multitudes of them. God sent many prophets. The Lord said by his servants, the prophets. What does he say? Because Manasseh, king of Judah. Who's Manasseh? Well, he's a king several generations before Daniel's time. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations. What abominations? Well, if we were to read earlier, we find out that Manasseh is the worst 
and most wicked king in the history of Judah. Manasseh brings in idolatry and pagan gods into the nation of Judah. Manasseh burns his son on a pagan idol's altar. Manasseh fills the city of Jerusalem with blood, with violence. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, and hear these words, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. That's the northern kingdom, which had been conquered and destroyed a century earlier. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. Wow, check out that image. Wiping it. And turning it upside down, it's useless. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them, give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. That was a promise from the God of heaven to his people. And now his word has come true. God has given his people to a pagan king. But look at this. God also gives his honor to a pagan God. Look in verse verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of What country? Babylon. Verse two, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them, the vessels from God's temple, to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Babylon and Shinar, if you go back into the Old Testament, Babylon and Shinar are the land and the kingdom associated with rebellion against God. The tower of Babel was in the land of Shinar. Those people erected a tower to show that they didn't need God. They were on their own and they were okay without him. And ever since then, the land of Shinar and the kingdom of Babylon have been a symbol for rebellion against God. It was into that pagan, God-hating culture that Nebuchadnezzar takes the vessels from God's very temple. And he doesn't just take them into his land. He puts them in the treasury of his God. What's the significance of that? He's essentially saying... I conquered your kingdom. My God conquered your God. Your stuff is mine. Your God's stuff is my God's stuff. The God of Judah looks weak. The God of Judah looks powerless. The God of Judah seems impotent. 
Where is he? What can he do? This is unexpected. God is allowing his name to be dishonored for a time so that, why? So that he can show his people their desperate need for him and ultimately draw them back to himself. He's working on a much longer time frame than we might hope or realize. A much longer time frame than even one lifespan. So this really shouldn't be unexpected to us because when we look through the scriptures, we see that the God of heaven is willing to go to unimaginable ends to awaken his people to their need of him and to draw them back to himself. And the greatest example of this is that God himself takes on human flesh and walks in the dirt of his creation among the wicked and rebellious and angry and idolatrous people who are going away from him. So while we were far from God, bent on our own way and intent on pursuing our own desires and plans, God sent his only son, his eternal son, to take on our flesh in order to be mocked, dishonored, tortured, and killed. And he did this so that we would see how heinous our sin is and how much he wants to draw us back to himself. Most of this book of Daniel is written to the people of God, written to those who have a relationship with the God of heaven. It's written to us so that we might obey him, remember him, follow him, and stay faithful to him. But there may be some today here or watching who do not have a relationship with this God. And today he calls to you. But you need to heed his warning. He sent messenger after messenger after messenger to the people of Judah, warning them to turn from their own way and to turn back to him. And they refused and refused and refused until his judgment fell. And today God is sending to you a messenger who is communicating to you The judgment of God is coming on your sin and yet he calls you to himself. So will you not come? Will you not heed his warning before destruction falls and it is too late? And for those who are God's people, for those who have a relationship with him, what does this mean for us? in the midst of this cultural upheaval, what must we do? We must trust. We must trust in the God who brings unexpected conquest. God does not work in the ways that we expect or that we sometimes want. So we must trust him when things seem out of control, when his name seems to be dishonored. And rather than fear, rather than be paralyzed, 
rather than claw for control, we must trust. What is Daniel's response in all this cultural upheaval as he is dragged away from his homeland into a foreign land? When he arrives there, what is his response? What will he do when his life is turned upside down? Well, he decides to start a diet craze complete with a health blog and a YouTube channel. Just kidding. For those of you who missed that, there are these things, these diets that get names from the Bible like Ezekiel bread or the Daniel fast or the Daniel diet. Come on, people. Do your diet thing, but don't give it a Bible name. Read your Bible. That's not the point of the passage. What does Daniel do? He makes a bold request. In the midst of cultural upheaval and in the midst of, and we could summarize this next section this way, in the midst of social pressure, in the midst of social pressure, what does he do? He makes a decision. He doesn't want to defile himself with the king's food and wine. Now, defile is a really strong word. In the Jewish culture, to be defiled means that you have been stained. You have been made unclean by some behavior, some word, some action, some thought. You have been made unclean, and so therefore you cannot approach the place of worship. You cannot gather with God's people to worship God. You are apart. So Daniel says, for some reason here, he thinks he's going to be defiled. And he makes a decision, I will not let that happen. What does he do? Well, before we get to that, what are some of the reasons that he might be defiled? Here's some possibilities. It could be that the food, the meat in particular that's mentioned, was the type of meat which the Mosaic law prohibited. If you're familiar with the Mosaic law, there was some type of meat that the Jews could eat, and there were some some types of meat and animals that God said you're not supposed to eat. That was to show that they were different from the nations around them. Could be this was a certain type of animal. Daniel says, I can't eat that. Could be another Mosaic law was that there couldn't be blood in the meat when you eat it. It has to be cooked out. Maybe blood was in the meat. So maybe there was a Mosaic law issue. But that doesn't really answer the question of the wine. It answers the question of the food. But wine wasn't prohibited or forbidden to the Jewish people. So that may not answer the question. And it also doesn't address the issue that apparently later in his life, Daniel ate meat and drank wine. Because in Daniel chapter 10, he says, I was fasting for three weeks and I didn't eat any delicacies. I didn't eat any meat and I didn't drink any wine. So apparently at that, for those three weeks, he didn't engage in things that he had eaten or drunk at some other times. So something's going on here. Daniel doesn't want to eat this particular meat or this particular wine, even though he may eat meat and drink wine later. Okay, so maybe it's a Mosaic law thing. Maybe it's association with idols. Maybe this food and wine was offered to pagan gods while it was prepared or when it was served. That's a possibility. It could be that this was just, this food was just another way of the king 
absorbing his captives into his culture. And so Daniel says, I'm getting absorbed into this culture in a lot of ways, but if I can make a decision somewhere, I'm going to draw a line. We don't really know. But Daniel decides, I'm going to try not to be defiled by this. So what does he do? Well, notice that he asks before he acts. He doesn't just rebel. He doesn't just say, I'm not doing it. He works through channels to see what, he, what can be done. But, so what are some of the barriers to this request that Daniel has? He approaches this overseer and he asks the chief eunuch if he cannot defile himself. There's a couple barriers here. First of all, if you want to put it this way, there's legal precedent. <laughs> the king passed down this word. Uh, it's kind of the law of the land that the captives eat the king's food. So nobody can just kind of go off on their own and do their own thing. Second, there's probably peer pressure. There's probably a whole lot of other people, a whole lot of other captives, both from Judah and from other countries who are eating the same stuff. And to stick out would be pretty awkward. Third, there could be some serious misunderstanding. Daniel is approaching the chief eunuch, a guy who probably is a Babylonian and has no concept of a Jewish culture. Here comes this teenage guy from this foreign country far away asking if he can't eat this particular food and drink this wine because he doesn't want to make himself unclean. What does that mean? There could be some serious misunderstanding. At best, this chief eunuch could say, dude, get in line. Everybody's doing it. Suck it up and just go with the flow. Or at worst, he could actually blacklist or punish Daniel for his impudence. Daniel's request is bold. He's taking a risk. But what are, what are the amazing responses that come as a result of his, his request? Verse nine, and God gave. Hey, that sounds familiar. There's our repeated phrase through this chapter. The Lord gave in the first section, the Lord was owner over Judah and gave what he owned to Nebuchadnezzar. Here, the Lord gives what? Favor. That means goodwill and compassion or sympathy. The Lord puts in this chief eunuch, this overseer's heart, he gives him goodwill toward Daniel and sympathy. Basically, the guy likes Daniel. And he wants to help him out. The one response you don't expect is the response that Daniel gets. God is at work. And he's not just the owner of countries that he can give to a king. He is the ruler over individual hearts. He plants goodwill and sympathy in the heart of this overseer toward Daniel. And it's almost as if the overseer in his answer, you read his answer carefully, the overseer does not say, Daniel, can't do it. What does the overseer say? Uh, the orders came down from up top. And if you look different because you ate different stuff, if you look different when the king sees you, my head's on the line. 
So he doesn't say, Daniel, you can't do it. We don't know exactly what he's saying here. We can't see nonverbal communication, but it's almost like he's saying, Daniel, I can't help you. Wink, wink, and walk away. Don't ask, don't tell. What does Daniel do? Okay, he latches on to something that the overseer says. Okay, it's not about the food, it's about our appearance. How do we look when we stand before the king? So what does he do? He goes to the steward. Apparently this guy is the servant who is interacting with Daniel and his friends every day. He's bringing Daniel his food. The overseer is over him, he's kind of like the boss. This guy is the guy who's on the ground. So Daniel goes to him. Now, is this underhanded? He's gotten a word from the boss already. Is Daniel going behind his authority's back? This brings up a great question for us. How do we live in Babylon? How do we live in a culture that is against God and opposed to him and what he says and what he thinks? And make no mistake, friends, we are living in Babylon. Cultures all through history have been described as Babylon. Those cultures that are rebelling against God and that do not want to hear his truth. So how do we live in this reality? How do we interact with authorities and people who are over us and who have plans for us which run counter to God? How do we maintain purity before God in a kingdom that's set against him and his ways? How do you not sin against your conscience, but still obey legal authority? This is tricky. And Daniel gives us a good example. He's not being underhanded or deceptive. He doesn't start off going around his authority. He went to his authority first. He asked the boss first. Now he moves to the guy who interacts with him and he's keeping the goal of the king and the well-being of his overseer in mind. Okay, the king wants me to look good and I don't want to endanger my boss's head. All right, let's see, how can we make this work? So he talks to the steward and he says, give us 10 days. Let's, Let's just try something for 10 days. And in the scope of three years of education, 10 days isn't that long. So steward, give us, give us 10 days. Give us vegetables, which actually that's probably more things that grow from seeds. So vegetables, fruits, grains. Give us vegetables and water. 10 days and then see how we look. And what's the response from this man? Verse 14. So he listened to Daniel and his friends. Again, the one response you wouldn't expect is the one Daniel gets. So what's going on here? God gave unexpected kindness to Daniel and his friends in the midst of social pressure that was seeking to conform them to a particular habit or behavior. And look at the invisible work that's behind all of this. In verse 13, what does Daniel say to the steward? Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food, listen to this, be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Then verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen. Something happened behind the scenes. God was at work 
in ways that nobody could manipulate. So what's the application for us? What does this mean for us? In the face of social pressure, be bold and wise. Take bold steps of faith. Take risks in order to obey God and follow your conscience. Be willing to risk your reputation, to look like a fool, to be ostracized. But do so with wisdom. Don't ostracize yourself. Don't make yourself into a fool. Don't rage against what you're losing. We are not the ones who hold all things together. We're not the ones who control things. So a couple of examples. We should be bold against moral horrors like abortion. We should take risks to defend innocent lives. But we need to do so in a wise way. Not, this is extreme, as has been done in the past, bombing abortion clinics. What steps can we take in wisdom and boldness? Another example. We must be bold in holding to God's standard for sexuality, even as our culture seeks to conform us to every deviance from God's plan for sexuality. But we don't engage in the abominable practice of holding up signs that say God hates fags. We act in boldness, but we act in wisdom as the culture seeks to pressure us. Well, if like Daniel, you've escaped from mortal danger in cultural upheaval, and if you've gained favor with those who seem to matter when there's pressure all around you, it could be easy to get a big head. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. But if there's any doubt in Daniel's mind about who's in control here, this last section makes it really clear. So verse 17 begins this last section, and we could categorize this as overwhelming odds. And what does verse 17 say? Surprise, surprise. As for these four youths, God gave. What did he give? God gave them learning and skill. He shows himself to be the source of all learning and wisdom, even in a completely foreign culture. God knows Babylonian culture just like he knows Jewish culture. And he knows how to give wisdom to his people in that culture. He gives them learning and skill. And and look at this. These teenage men who were stepping into a completely foreign world and only studied for three years actually excel at it. (laughs) It's amazing. And verse 17 says, they were given wisdom in all literature and wisdom. They didn't excel in just one or two areas. They weren't just professionals in one field. They knew everything about everything. Daniel has a special ability. Verse 17 again, Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing, foreshadowing. There's an Easter egg for you, a hint of what's to come. God gives Daniel a special ability with dreams and visions. And we'll hear more about that in the coming weeks. No doubt these guys worked really hard. They studied, 
Other parts of scripture tell us God doesn't reward laziness. So these guys probably worked hard. He didn't, God didn't just infuse into them a bunch of facts like a robot where they could spit out information to the king when they had to. No, they worked at it. But even with all their hard work, there's no way that what happened next was just due to really hard study over three years. Because what happens? There is unquestioned recognition of these guys' superiority. In these five verses, verses 17 through 21, the word all or every is repeated six times. All literature and wisdom, all visions and dreams, among all of the captives, and in every matter that the king asked them about, they were better than all the magicians and enchanters in all of the kingdom. These guys stood out in every area and over every one. And it was so observable that the difference between them was stark. Verse 19 says, none was found like them. They had no equal. No one could measure up. And beyond that, the king found these four guys 10 times better. It wasn't even close. Now, this is astounding. Here's three teenage guys who come from a foreign little pipsqueak country They get brought into Babylon, which is the superpower of the world at that time. They're educated for three years and they come in and they start making the guys who have grown up in Babylon and studied their whole lives look like fools. That's not natural. That doesn't come from three years of study. God gave unexpected success. Someone has been at work behind the scenes and everyone can see it. So friends, what does this mean for us? In the face of overwhelming odds, and man, did they have overwhelming odds. Four guys, young guys, who were behind the ball by a number of years, are trying to catch up. And they're not just better than all of their peers. They're better than all of the magicians and politicians and guys who were entrenched in the Babylonian government. I mean, the odds are stacked against them. And yet in the face of overwhelming odds, we can rest. Rest. Rest in God's provision. He gives unexpected success. He gives it from unexpected sources and he gives it at unexpected times. So to conclude, look down at the last verse because this is really easy to miss. You could blow right over this. Verse 21, and Daniel was there until the reign, the first year of King Cyrus. Who's King Cyrus? He's the ruler of the Persian emperor, empire. That comes after the Babylonian empire. And that's decades after now. So what's the point of including it here? Daniel outlasted Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar of Babylon. He outlasted Darius, the Mede, and he lived into the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. He saw rulers come and go. He saw empires rise and fall. 
And here's the difference between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our Lord. The empires of Babylon and Persia and Turkey and Germany and Russia and Britain and even the United States rise. Rulers flex their muscles and flaunt their power, but soon rulers fade and they die and empires crumble and fall. But the Lord of heaven is the sovereign ruler who is at work in unexpected ways over all and behind all and through it all. His kingdom lasts forever. And so in cultural upheaval, he gives conquest. It's his work. In social pressure, he shows kindness to his people. And against overwhelming odds, he gives success when we do not expect it. Brothers and sisters, this is the God we serve. And so we do not have to be fearful or paralyzed or desperate or angry. We can trust and be bold and be wise and rest because there is a wise God who rules over all and is for his people through it all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are this kind of king. We can trust you even when life seems out of control. We can rest in you even when we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Thank you that you are the high king of heaven. Continue to fill our hearts and minds with your power, your glory, your beauty, your majesty, and make a difference in how we engage with our world as a result of doing this in our hearts and minds. I pray in your name, amen.